Last week, we spent some of our time talking about the gospel. The gospel being the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, lived on earth as a human. He taught, healed, and loved. He gave up his life, dying on the cross. But that that death on the cross was not the end of Jesus. That Jesus rose again, offering us eternal life with God. And recognizing that this all happened, this story exists, we know Jesus like we do because of God's great love for us. Jesus is the expression of how much God loves us. And it is a miraculous, incredible, unbelievable story that we get to be a part of. That it's so... It's so strong that that it shapes our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world we live in, and it changes how we look at things. We have hope when we should be hopeless. We have peace when we should be frantic. We have forgiveness that we do not deserve. And it is this message that we get to take to the world, which is why the gospel is called the good news, because it is good news. And if anyone is hearing bad news about Jesus, then they are not hearing the gospel. Now, I don't know, I, you know, I have some Christian friends in my life, and one of the questions that I've asked, answered, I should say, more frequently over the last few years than any other question, than, or I should say, than at any other time in my life is, do you actually believe that Jesus died and was resurrected? And you can hear it in their voices. Now, these are friends of mine, so they're not picking on me. They're not trying to prove me wrong or do anything else. They have just understood what sometimes we take for granted about the gospel story is that it really if all the laws of things were in place shouldn't happen right a person does not die and then come back to life or or the idea that the son of god would come to earth or, or what that death and resurrection means. We underappreciate this, guys, that the story kind of doesn't make sense by our own standards. It's a story that is different in so many ways. And we have uh, talked about the kind of story that the gospel is. So let's, let's review that very quickly. It is the story, and this is part of what makes it so weird. It is a story of an all-powerful, holy God, meaning a God that is set apart, different from us. It's about his relationship with a world that is broken. And it's not just the world we live in now. It was the world that Jesus walked and lived in. In. He entered a world that was torn apart by race, uh, religious elitism, social and political constructs. It was a hard and difficult place that Jesus lived. And, and he did not spend time while he was here with the most influential, the wealthiest, the most powerful. Instead, Jesus spent time with those who were ignored. 
those who were not good enough, those who hid around corners so as not to have to deal with people's stares and whispers. And through his actions, he said to those who had no place at the table of the powerful that there is a place for them at the table of God. And he would go into their homes. Jesus was not afraid to be seen with the wrong kind of people. He sought them out, ate with them, and in so doing, he showed the unloved that they were not as unloved as they thought they were. They were seen. They were known. They were heard. And even if no one else on earth valued them, their Father in heaven did. He does. They are special to him. Which is why we say that the gospel, or I say, I should say, I'm assuming you agree with me, why I say that the gospel is a story that's alive. Uh, it, it, you see that life flare up every time the gospel interacts with someone's life. And we can look at all the biblical examples. We looked at Zacchaeus last week, who was the worst of the worst in so many ways. And no one liked him, and they certainly didn't respect him. But Jesus, what did he do? He saw him. He went into his home. He treated him like someone whom God loves. And how did Zacchaeus respond? He changed his life. In a day, he changed his life. We see the gospel have an enormous effect on those who need their story to be changed. That's part of what Zacchaeus tells us. That Zacchaeus was out there that day, even if he was all the way at the far back, climbing up in a tree so he could see things, he was there that day because there was some part of him, no matter who he was or what he had done, there was some part of him that wanted what Jesus had to offer. And, and perhaps he had heard about the things that Jesus had said. Maybe he had heard about the kind of people that Jesus spent his time with. Maybe he had heard about the way that Jesus healed those who had been considered lost for so long, and so he just wants to see if it's true. Not only is it true, it's bigger than he could have imagined. It's it's more than he ever could have dreamed it would be. And an encounter with that kind of love and care makes him a different person. Or does it simply unlock what God always knew he could be? if he and the world around him got out of the way. It makes us ask, you know, how does that happen? What story has so much powerful to turn a person from one thing into another? Because most of us have had conversations with people over the years where we have shared the gospel. And I don't know what your experience has been like, but no one has ever left a meeting with me where I spoke the gospel to them. They have never left that meeting 
with a changed life, making up for all the ways they had cheated and stolen from people, and giving the rest of what they have to the poor. I haven't had that encounter. Maybe you have. Maybe that's like a Thursday for you. (laughs) But I haven't had that encounter. And sometimes I wonder why that is. Why doesn't our presentation of the gospel have the same effect as Jesus' presentation of the gospel? And what are we doing wrong? Well, let's get something out of the way really quick. Um, None of us are Jesus. So that's a factor in the level of success that we might have in comparison to him. But there's more to that statement than, than just the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that he knows people's hearts and minds, that he knows what to say. I hate, I, I hate to share this with you, but that's, I'm not convinced that's really the key to the difference. Because the gospel is an experience and not a story. And while the details of what God has done needs to be told, it is not a very effective if that story is not backed up by experience. You know, the gospel is not just something we hear, it's something that happens to us. And too often, we focus on the hearing or the speaking instead of what is happening to or with the person in front of us. Because people don't just need to hear about how much God loves them. They need to experience it. And if they're not experiencing it, they're not experiencing the gospel. They are hearing someone talk about something that is meaningful to them. So, this morning, we're going to look at a story that captures what it is about the gospel that creates that experience, what it is about it that makes it alive, and what it is about it that translates the gospel past mere words into something else. And the story is one that you are familiar with, dare I say, very familiar with, I dare. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. One of the reasons why we value stories so much in our uh, conversations about God is that Jesus chose to communicate about who God is through story, and he did it often, many times. And sometimes he was using a story to communicate something that was almost uh, unfathomable, that we can't wrap our minds around, and the story is the only way that we're going to get it. But in this story, he communicates the most simple yet profound of things. And he uses this story to help us understand what all this is that we're living in. So let's pick it up in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, this story, and and not just in the Bible, but really kind of throughout this part of the story, is one that the world knows well. Um, and, and, and it's remarkable for several, several different reasons. Number one, uh, this is a great piece of storytelling on the part of Jesus because he knew exactly what he wanted to tell the crowd that was listening to them that day. And what did he want to tell them about? He wanted to tell them about the gospel, which is a message about the love of God. He wanted him to know these things. But he knew that simply saying, you know, God really loves you, wasn't going to cut the mustard, right? Because had these people heard before that God loved them? Yes, they had. Um, They would have all been Jewish. They would have all had a long, long history with God, and they would have all known that God loved them. They knew that. And yet, they did not understand what that meant. They had their own ideas and versions of what that meant and how that played out in their relationship with God. They understood how following the law, how making sacrifices, how living your life in the right way was a way to interact with the love of God. After all, God loves those who follow the law, who make their sacrifices, and who do the right things. That is their understanding in a nutshell. And it's, it's more than that, and it's deeper than that, so don't misunderstand me. But that, in essence, is a big part of their understanding of who God is. God loves you, and he loves you more when you do the God things. And we can't judge them for that because we think the same thing. No matter how many times we are told that God loves us and God loves the world, you don't have to look far within Christianity today to hear That God actually loves those who follow his rules and live their lives, at least publicly, in a certain way, and who make their sacrifices to God. How does he get past that kind of understanding to what the love of God is actually like? He told this story. And the characters in the story are distinct. And though there is not 
a lot of detail given, we know, especially about the sons, exactly who they are. They are an archetype. They are a kind of person. And so even though we don't have in-depth descriptions of them, we kind of don't need them, do we? We understand a lot about them based on the little information that we have. And today, we are going to focus on the youngest son and the father. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how awful of a person the youngest son is. And you are supposed to feel that way when you hear this story. You are supposed to not like him. Beyond that, you are supposed to feel like this kind of person is the worst, absolute worst kind of person that there is. It starts with this. He went to his father and asked for his share of the inheritance while his father was still alive. Per Jewish law, the older son would receive two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would receive one-third of the estate. And this was typically done when the father had passed. It could conceivably be done earlier, but Jewish law advised against it. Yeah, it did. Because it's an extraordinarily bad idea to go to your father and say, I really hoped you had been dead by now, you would have been dead by now, but you're not, and I'm ready to get on with my life, but I need what you have in order to get on with my life, so if it's not such a big deal, would you just go ahead and pretend like you died and give me what I would have gotten then so that I can go and do what I want? And the father, for reasons that we are not told, decided to go through with this. And the son took his share, the work of his father's life, perhaps even wealth that had been passed down from his father's father, and so on and so forth. And and he took that, converted it into cash, which might have involved even selling off some of the family land, and left for a foreign land and spent all that money on whatever it was he wanted to. The NIV says that he spent his money on wild living. Well, that's a broad category, isn't it? Kind of a lot of things that can fit in there. The direct translation says of, of this phrase says that he lived recklessly. That's good, too. It gives us some more insight, right? And and what does it tell us about him? He does not value what he received. And he's putting no thought, zero, into what he is spending it on. He is a young man chasing whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. That's what he's doing. And the text says that he squandered it all. All of it. He didn't set some aside for the future. He didn't give some to the homeless mission in town. He squandered all of it. Meaning what? At the end of the day, 
He had spent all this money, and what did he have? Nothing. He had nothing. This leads us to the next part of the story, and we have this sort of transitional piece in here that we're going to look at next. But when we read this, even though it's just a few verses, you know, we get to verses 15 and 16, and we're not upset about it, are we? We're not supposed to be. Because we look at this, and we think, yeah, of course that's where you are. And who did this? You did. You did this to yourself. This is where you should be. Which leads us to his thoughts. This is kind of the first time we see into his thinking here in verses uh, 17 through 20. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So we got up and went to his father. Now again, this to this point has been how the story should go. And as readers, if we were reading this for the first time, we would be hearing the words that he said and thinking... (laughs) Good luck with that. Good luck going back and finding something. Because given what the son did to the father, the outcome he has found him in to us as readers is acceptable and even deserved and not a surprise. This is what someone who does such awful things gets. And the statement that he makes about himself is exactly right. He is, in fact, not worthy. Not just, not just of becoming a son again. He's not even worthy, we know, of this proposal he is making to himself. Why? Why? Would the father want a servant who has already shown that the last thing on his mind is serving the father? Why? That's not a move you make. That's not something that you do. We should expect for him to take his time, the father, when his son comes back and gives him this speech. We should expect for him uh, to take his time to figure out what exactly he wants to do. Perhaps he should have his son see the head of his household first. Perhaps he should make his son wait in a room that's exceptionally hot. There are lots of possibilities that come to mind, but this is sort of what we expect. And the reason why we would expect the father's reaction to be cold and distant is because that is how this story goes. That is how this story goes. We have seen it play out in real life. We have read about it in books. 
We have seen it in TV shows and movies. This is the story. And while we may love a redemption story, we all know that not just in media, but in this world, redemption is the exception and not the rule. And we're lying to ourselves if we're telling, saying something different. Which makes me wonder, when we are sharing the gospel, and if this story is an analogy that we might find ourselves telling and being in, who are we in this story? And who is the person that we're sharing it with? Are we the son? Which son? Are we speaking on behalf of the father to the prodigal? Is the person that we're sharing with the one who has done these terrible things and is awaiting judgment. And here's something that maybe you haven't considered before. If the son is the main character, then what is the lesson of this story so far? That, that people do things that are wrong, sometimes really wrong, and in order... To go back to the Father, what must one do? Completely humble yourself, crawl back, and hope for the best. It's an exercise in acknowledging how awful anyone like the Son is. And perhaps in our own reading today, knowing how things are, expressing that really you can only go back to the Father under certain conditions. And until you meet those conditions, you might want to think about it. Because that is what it takes to return home. But the story, of course, we know is not over. Because the next line is, But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you know what the point of this story is? It is this. This is why Jesus is telling the story. If anyone, friend or foe, is going to hear anything from this story, it is this that they need to hear. If anyone is going to hear the gospel, it is this that they need to hear. And if anyone is going to experience it, then it is this, that they must experience. Because it is this sentence that alters the course of God's relationship with his people. 
It is this thought, this impulse, this action on the part of the Father that changes everything and makes this story a story that we never would have imagined to tell. Honestly, never would have thought to tell it this way. It continues, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We need to spend some time here as we finish up talking about this father. The father is the character that we have seen. We see the least, except for the older brother, who also has his time to shine here a little bit later. But the father is who this story is about. It's not about the son. In fact, The son and his brother are simply devices to illustrate the way that God's love works with different people. The son, sitting in the pigsty, realized, oddly enough, something he should have known all along, that his father is a good father, that he always has been a good father. And not only is he a good father, he is a good master. His servants have more food than they can eat. That's saying something about who the father is. But there amongst the pigs, he realizes these things. And if his father is a man of mercy, the son thinks, well, maybe I could go back and just live at the bottom of this house. And my life would be better there than it is here on my own. And again, we are to think that's right. That is where you deserve to be only if your father is merciful. But we wouldn't hate the father if he said no. Would we? As readers of this story, probably not. So he works out the speech in his head, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And I have always imagined this son practicing the speech in his head the entire way from wherever he was back to his father's house. And it is at this point that we see those words we looked at just a moment ago that we get the rest of the story. And the words are remarkable. Seriously. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around his head, and kissed him. And this is the point where we as readers are supposed to say, Really? Like, there is 
something incredibly strange about the father's reaction. That because we have heard this story so many times, we forget that the father is, he doesn't do what anyone would do. Really. He does not do what anyone would do. Instead, he writes his own ending. There's a lot in that statement that we could look at and that draws out who the father actually is. He recognized his son from how far? Why? Why did he recognize his son? What does it tell us about him? It, it tells us about how much he loved him, number one. It tells us that perhaps he's looking for him. We don't know what that might have looked like. But it tells us also that he recognized his son as soon as he saw him, which tells us something about him as a father. He has always loved his son in this way. So much so that even on the horizon, he recognizes him. It's remarkable. And then, like an idiot, he runs down the road. And his son is ready to give his speech. Father, <clears throat> father. He's ready. And he starts giving the speech before his father really even gets to him. And the father doesn't hear a word. Doesn't hear a word. He is too busy trying to wrap his arms around his son who was gone and has come back. And remarkably, he does not make him beg. He does not make him admit just how wrong he was. He doesn't make him show an accounting for how he wasted the family's money, acknowledging each expense. He doesn't say, you know what, why don't you wait here, and I'm going to decide, go home and think about if you're really sorry. I don't know. I don't know if you're really sorry enough for what you've done. Instead, he embraced his son before he could get a word out, and then he ignored him when he tried to explain himself again, and then he threw a party. He gave him the best robe. He put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and he, he completely and fully restored his son to sonship. Why? Because he loves him. But that doesn't quite get there, does it? It's because he loves him, but it's also because, you know, all of the things that he did 
to his father are less important than the fact that he's there right then. It overwhelms all of that. So much so that the father doesn't even really care about all the things we have cared about on his behalf through the first part of this story. All he wanted was for his son to come home. And there he is. And he does not waste a moment letting his son know that these things you did are not who you are. You are my son. That is who you are. And you don't have to make yourself less than that in order to come home. You don't have to explain yourself in order to come home. You don't have to sit in that hot room sweating it out, waiting for what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it. I'm going to do it before you can get a word out of your mouth. What does this story say about the gospel? What does it how, how, how does it bring something that, you know, is an idea that God loves us, that God wants us to be with him, that God restores us? How does it take that and put different skin on it so that it feels like something we might not understand without this story? Because in ways that are difficult for us to wrap our minds around, it tells us that no matter what you have done or how far away you have gone, that you can always go home. The Father will be watching for you, and when He sees you, He will run to greet you. And he will not treat you as you may deserve. Instead, he will restore you, celebrate over you, and welcome you home. That is the beating heart of our God. And all this time, all this time, they thought they had to crawl back to him and hope that he would love them. There's no crawling involved, and your hope will not be disappointed, for this is who your God is. Do we want the gospel to be effective when we share it with other people? Yes, that's why we share it. Do we get caught up in saying the right words, telling the right stories? Do we for some reason believe that a person's life needs to change after 15 minutes with us because that's what happened with Jesus? We can talk about all those things, but here is the basic 
tenant, I think, of this story and of Jesus' life. People do not need to be told that they are loved. They need to be loved. And being loved lets them know they're loved. And what a shame it would be if we only apply the principles we have seen in that story to ourselves and not to those who are still in a pigsty wondering how to get home. It's not enough to tell people that God loves them. We must love them and we must do so radically in a way that makes no sense if we are going to love as God does. We cannot love like we love, with all of its rules and conditions. Instead, we must take a risk. A risk that really isn't one at all. For why should we worry about being too loving to those who are away from God? Is there such a thing? as being too graceful, too merciful, too forgiving? Do we secretly think that they need to sweat it out a bit? That they need to go through the right steps? That they need to start at the bottom before they can come home? Well, we can think that if we want. But that's not the story that Jesus told, lived, and demonstrated. It is not enough to tell people God loves them. We must love them. We must love when others don't. We must love when we feel like we shouldn't. We must love where it is not deserved. We must go to the places where those who do not know the love of God are and not worry so much about ourselves and how it might look or what people might think or what kind of thing we're giving off by going there. No, we walk through the doors and declare to anyone that God loves them. Not just for who they will become if they change things, but for who they are. God loves them. And God wants to know them. And He wants them to know Him. Because He is not the God who sits back on His throne waiting for His people to crawl to Him. He is the God who runs down the road. And it is this extravagant action that makes the love of God different than anything that might claim to be true love. And it is this love and only this love that we have experienced, which compels us, as Paul would say, to go and tell the world This God doesn't just love me. He loves you. And he loves you right now. 
more than you will ever understand. That, my friends, is good news, isn't it?